Good morning, everybody. We are in the fourth and final week of our series entitled Heaven is for Real. And if you've missed the first three weeks, they're available at our website. There's podcasts there that you can hear me wax eloquently about the mysteries of the afterlife, which is what we've been talking about for the past three weeks, about death and heaven and the afterlife. And we're trying to grasp a biblical picture of our future. And by that, I mean after death. And so we began by saying, listen, according to the Bible, death does not mean for us game over, as in life is now over, that at your death, I believe the essence of who you are, your soul, will continue right on. You might be a little dazed in the transition from one moment in this life to the next life, but the essence of who you are will continue right on. You will not cease to exist. You will remember who you are, and you will remember those that you love, and all those who belong to Jesus, are in this moment in a state of peace and happiness and held firmly in the conscious love and presence of Christ. It is what Jesus says to the thief on the cross at his crucifixion, today you will be with me in paradise. Or he'll later tell another story about being at Abraham's side, or some of your translations will say Abraham's bosom. It is a place of comfort and peace. Or it is what Jesus says to disciples when he says, listen, I'm going to my father's mansion in which there are many rooms and I'm preparing one for you. But that is far from the end of the story. That is simply an intermediate state. It's a temporary state. Listen, heaven is great, but it's not the end of the world. Heaven is life after death. But according to the Bible, there is life after life after death. And I think this is important because it feels like, and I know for me growing up, like I never heard of anything beyond like we die and we go to heaven. And that became the focal point of thought and energy and hymnology. And if our, it became the main goal was to get people's souls to heaven. When that idea and concept is barely talked about or mentioned in the Bible, it seemed that the great Christian hope is not that it seemed that we finally get to leave this earth and spend eternity in heaven. And in my brain as a kid, it was like like little Casper the friendly ghost and what we did, I have no idea, but it sure wasn't exciting to me, especially as a kid. In fact, for most Christians, it seems like that's all they know to expect. We've missed the entire overall teachings and message of the Bible, which in the end practically leaves us so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. No, no, no. Our hope is that Jesus is coming back. And when he does, God is going to break into real time, real story, and real space and set things right. And last week we looked at the concept of that at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the day of the Lord has broken in. It was what the Bible looked forward to, that the day of the Lord will finally show up and make everything right, and it happened in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, we're still looking forward to that second coming of Jesus that we could still rightfully call the great day of the Lord. And so it broke in at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it's when he comes back we live in between the times that the kingdom of God has broken in. And that's why when, we should, when people get sick, we should pray for healing, and we should expect to see healing because the kingdom of God is here now. And yet we still have those moments where we experience, look, I'm praying for this, but it doesn't seem to be coming to pass, and we have people who we love who are sick who end up dying, and the answer for me is because we're still awaiting the fullness of God's kingdom reign at the second coming of Jesus. And so that's what we turn our attention to today is, so then what happens? So Jesus shows up, and when Jesus returns, what happens? Well, let me give you two things immediately. One, it says that the dead in Christ will rise first. 
So if you die before Jesus shows up for a second time, you didn't miss anything. In fact, Paul wants us to know you'll be the first one to rise with him and you will experience the same thing that Jesus experienced in his resurrection. You will experience bodily resurrection just like Jesus who is the first fruit. Now listen, it'll be a new kind of body, but Jesus is the template. It will be your body. It will be immortal at that moment. It will be imperishable, but it is still bodily, which I'm looking forward to. I've already got a request for more hair, thinner, and I'm going to be so good looking. (laughs) The second thing that the Bible talks about is everyone standing then before the judgment seat of Christ, which I don't know about you, but like when I think about the judgment seat of Christ, I don't get warm fuzzies. Like I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, right? That's that moment where I'm thinking... Now I've got to give an account for everything. But I'm telling you, I think if you belong to Jesus, this is very simple. Like, you don't defend yourself. You don't need to explain anything. And I don't think God has as his intent to embarrass you in front of everybody else. Like, if it's a matter of standing before the judgment seat of Christ, I will plead guilty as charged and then say, but I belong to him. And he'll step forward and say, he belongs to me. And this will be judgment. But what's interesting is the New Testament tone about the judgment seat of Christ is overwhelmingly positive which is weird because, for me, I don't think positive, but there's a reason why. And you've got a picture that, let's say that you were living in the first century and you've confessed Jesus as Lord. What typically happened at that moment was, for you, oftentimes great persecution. Like, you suffered because of your faith in Christ Jesus, sometimes at the hands of your family, sometimes at the hands of society at large, and sometimes you went through persecution, and sometimes you might even give your life to that. So imagine losing people who are in your family or who are in your church who have given their life for Jesus. There would be a hope that you might have that, in the end, God will vindicate this. God is going to step in, and He's going to make this right. Like, this has not escaped his attention, and justice will be had. And so, the judgment seat of Christ in the New Testament is oftentimes portrayed as not as a negative thing, but as that moment when we finally get vindicated before our enemies, that the just God who exists finally steps in and does something. And this is even the ethical motivation that Paul gives us for why you don't have to hit back. Like, when somebody wrongs you or you're the victim of injustice, when somebody commits an act of evil against you, you don't have to respond in kind with evil. You can respond in kind with, with love, and you can respond with, with goodness. And so he'll say, like in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, listen, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll, you'll heap burning coals on his, head, on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the whole point is nothing has escaped God's notice and attention. Now, it might have felt like you were at the whim of evil or of fate or of the rulers and powers and authorities, but now they'll be put under Christ's feet, 1 Corinthians 15. And so you've got different passages. Let me give you another passage of judgment. It's in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Very, it's apocalyptic language, which means full of imagery, full of metaphor. But here's what uh, it says in Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. But another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Listen, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. 
and anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And what you see in the end of the judgment seat of Christ is that God will get his way. And from Genesis to Revelation, what you get a picture of is a God who's intent on redeeming and restoring his creation and his original intent. And in that, it's what the Bible calls, and this is what I want to talk about, the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth. I think sometimes when it comes to issues of death and heaven and afterlife, we very easily fall into a very narrow, self-centered view of what's going to happen. And I'm not critical of that. I get it. Like, the focus for me at death is, well, what's going to happen to me? Like, it's hard to have the big picture of God in mind in that moment. It quickly becomes narrow. What's going to happen to me? What will be my individualistic picture of the end times? And then hymns don't help us. Well, you know, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. Or this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Or when the world is called up yonder, I'll be there. But if you read through the canon of Scripture, what you'll see is you might buy a ticket on the glory train, but you better make it round trip because you're coming back here. And I don't think our American culture with its focus on individuality helps us in this regard with individual rights and self-determination and independence. And I've had any critique for all the life after death books and accounts, even the title of the series, Heaven is for Real, came from Todd Burpo's book about his four-year-old son, Colton, who had this kind of death experience and three minutes in heaven. And did it happen? Again, I don't know. Maybe it did. I, I can't prove otherwise. But the critique I would have is, in the end, it's always very individualistic about what I experienced, what I saw. I get to sit in Jesus' lap and met deceased loved ones and angels singing over me, those sorts of things. Listen, God's future for the world isn't about you. It includes you, and you're going to be involved, but it isn't about you. God has been up to a much bigger deal throughout history, and the end of time, it doesn't shift back from God's bigger purpose to your individualistic experience. In the end, what it's about is God will not let Satan have the last word. Sin will not have the last word, and death will not have the last word. Listen, the world will not remain broken. God will have his way. Now, can you imagine for just a moment God pouting in heaven? Like, just picture the God, like in heaven, just kind of pouting and discouraged and well, what's wrong, God? Well, I created the world, and I thought it was very good, but then Satan came and ruined it. Like, it's kind of hard to picture, right? Like God is somehow at the mercy of whatever Satan wants. Because Satan isn't going to have the last word in creation. God is going to have the last word. And God isn't thinking to himself, well, I guess that didn't work out. I'm going to have to come up with a plan B because Satan's sin and death messed everything up. I, listen, God is not, nor has he ever been at the mercy of Satan's sin and death. And God isn't thinking to himself, I know it's messed up, but I don't care because I'm just going to torch the planet anyhow and take the faithful up with me in heaven. Now, this is what I thought happened. I thought in the end God just like takes some big cosmic match and torches the whole planet and we all go up to heaven. But when you read through the entirety of the Bible, that makes very little sense. Because it seems the entire story from Genesis 3 on is the story of God's work to redeem and rescue his very good creation. Why go through all the trouble of that if in the end you're just going to torch it? Redemption doesn't mean scrapping what's there and starting over with a clean slate, but rather liberating what has come to be enslaved. And thus the ultimate purposes of God are not what happens up in the heavens, but what God does 
here on earth. Listen, heaven is not our ultimate home. The earth is. This is the space that God created for us. It is the space He intended for us to live. And even the earth itself awaits its redemption. That's why the Apostle Paul will say this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Listen, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated. Not torched, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought under the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in It's like the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Or you get this picture, it's in Revelation chapter 21, beginning of verse 1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Before I move on to verse 3, go back to verse 2 for a second. Look at the direction. What's the direction? Is it us going up into heaven or what's the direction? It is heaven coming down from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell among them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Or it continues the picture at the end of this chapter, verse 22. Just listen to the picture of this new heaven and new earth. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there won't be any more night. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then when you get over to the next chapter, Revelation 22, verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Now, listen to the imagery because this is supposed to draw into your mind a previous story. Listen, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Where did you hear this from? Do you remember where this comes from? It's Genesis 1 and 2. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will 
they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. It seems that God is going to do for the whole cosmos what he had done for Jesus at Easter. Like what happened to Jesus at Easter is what God intends to do for the entire cosmos. He will make everything new. And Satan, sin, and death will not have the last word. And what drives God in this are two things. One, God's justice. Listen, God will make everything right. And the second thing is the fact that God is a good creator. See, we don't walk around and go, oh, the earth is bad, physical matter is bad, the body is bad, earth is... No, no, no. Listen, our story is that when God finished creating, he stepped back and said, oh, no, this is very good. And it's because it is very good that God will have the last word. And over and over again, what you see is this concept of new heaven and new earth. Let me share a couple scriptures with you. Even going back into the Old Testament, Isaiah 65, verse 17, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they even come to mind. Or Isaiah 66, verse 22, as the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. Or 2 Peter, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Or we were just in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Or Isaiah chapter 11. It doesn't mention new heaven and new earth, but it gives that description of what the future entails. And this is what he says in verse 6 of Isaiah 11. The wolf will live with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, what that means is in the future, you're going to go to Potawatomi Zoo, and there will be no fences. That's what that means. What God originally intended in Genesis 1 and 2 is going to be realized. And note the language and metaphors in Revelation. God's intent for the earth will be realized, and you'll have a part to play in it. Now, it isn't about you, but it will not exclude you, and your experience will be wonderful. No tears, no pain, no cancer. Praise God for that. I mean, it was relay for life or go as a survivor or in memory of somebody who's passed because of cancer, like they'll all be survivors just walking. No heart attacks, no diabetes, no sin, no disease, no brokenness. And like Genesis 1 and 2, I'm rooting for no clothes, Woo-hoo! but I can't guarantee that. I at least know in the new heaven and new earth there are no crocs. I do know that. I'm teasing. I don't care. So the question then, so what are we going to be doing then in this new heavens and new earth? Like, what, what do we do? Well, the metaphor of Revelation is that heaven and earth are married together, and Jesus invites us to his wedding banquet. And so in my mind, I picture then, 
there's a banquet, a wedding celebration, we'll be eating and drinking and partying, praise God, because that's what you do at a wedding banquet. I picture there being an angelic DJ, but because it's the new heaven and new earth, they cannot play I Like Big Butts and I Cannot Lie. It will be banned (laughs) because in our new resurrected bodies, there won't be any big butts. The electric slide and the cha-cha slide will be banned as well, but it will happen in hell, and you don't want to go there. As N.T. Wright puts it, I can't give you a photograph of the new heavens and the new earth. I can only put up signposts, which means, in other words, I don't know exactly. I do believe there will be activities and eating and drinking and music and maybe even karaoke, and your new resurrected voice is going to be beautiful. You will sing Neil Diamond, Sweet Caroline, like no other. It will be a place of great beauty and joy, and we will live continually in the atmosphere of the glory of God. But the predominant image of our future is that, and here's the phrase that's used over and over again, we will get to reign with Christ. We'll get to reign with Christ. Dallas Willard mentioned one time about encountering people who were older and in that aging process would oftentimes be just disappointed with how life had turned out. Like, you know, they'd hoped it had been different and just in that aging process. It, it revealed that their fundamental view of the aging process is that they would no longer have a future. To which he would respond, that's not true at all. Like, even if you're in a 95-year-old body, you have a future. A future even that will include the earth. There's no need to feel disappointment in the aging because there is much, much more to come. He'll say, we will not just sit around looking at one another or at God for eternity, but we'll join the eternal logos, reigning with him. In the endless, ongoing, creative work of God It is for this that we were each individually intended as both kings and priests. And you catch glimpses of it in God's intent for his own people in Exodus 19, verse 6. It says to the Israelites, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words you should speak to the Israelites. That's echoed in Revelation 5, verse 10. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Which is why what happens now in terms of discipleship is so important. And what I mean by that is is we are preparing for ourselves right now in discipleship the ability to reign in the future. We're undergoing a transformation process that leads us to instinctively and consistently respond like Jesus would in every situation. That's what discipleship is all about. That in the end, my most natural reaction and response to anything going on in my life, to all of my intentions and plans, are instinctively and naturally in line with Jesus. And that prepares me then for the future to be able to reign with him, that I'll be able to react and respond as Jesus would. And Jesus tells us that our faithfulness now over even a few things in this present phase of life develops in us the kind of character then that can be entrusted in the end with many things. He'll say this in a parable in Luke 19, verse 17, Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, you could take charge of ten cities. See, in the future, new heavens and new earth, if you've ever wanted to be in charge, you get to be in charge. You're going to reign with Christ. And maybe you'll get ten cities, including Argus, which I think would be beautiful this time of year. We become agents of the kingdom of God. And what I mean by that is what God wants to happen, happens. We get to participate in that. It's his rule and his reign. We get to see, join him in seeing his creative reign exist. So let me give you just a few scriptures on this concept of reigning with Christ as you see it over and over again. One's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. It says, here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. 
If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Or Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, And he has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Or Revelation 5.10 again, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Or Revelation 20, verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Or Revelation 22, verse 5, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And I confess, it's sort of like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, for now, we see dimly, like in a mirror. Now, back in the first century, mirrors didn't look like they do now. I mean, it was a very imperfect reflection. Now, it kind of feels like you get a good look in the mirror, and that's probably accurate in terms of reality. But in Paul's day, you could see your reflection, but it was imperfect. Paul says, for now, that's what it's like to us. But then, we will see clearly and know even as we are fully known. He'll compare to the difference between being a child and an adult. When we were a child, it was sort of like this, but when we matured and grew up, then we could see more clearly. But in the end, what will get restored, if I could borrow a Hebrew word here, the word is shalom. And shalom in the English we translate as peace, but don't read that as like just the absence of conflict. The Hebrew word shalom is deep in meaning. It means wholeness, completeness, well-being. That's what we have to look forward to. Let me give you some three practical implications of our future. If this is all true according to the Scriptures, let me, let me give you three things I think this means first. One is, if you're not an environmentalist, you should be. If you're not an environmentalist, you should be. And I'm totally okay with continuing to debate the issues of, you know, global warming and the melting of the polar caps and sources of pollution. I'm not saying we all have that figured out, but the earth is our concern. What I found is, especially in Christian circles, the idea that we shouldn't care about the earth because in the end it's just going to get torched anyhow and we're going to get rescued from it. So what does it matter? Even some strands of end-time prophecies and thoughts that even roots itself in an increased volatility on the earth. But I would say, no, no, listen, the earth was created for us now and forever. And the original instruction in Genesis was for us to go and in the image of God to take care of and rule the earth. Our care of the planet and thus God's cosmos is, for me, an issue of faithfulness and stewardship that is tied up in this entire question of is heaven for real and what happens in the afterlife. But number two, our hope and goal is not to get everyone to heaven, so to speak. Let me explain this for just a moment. But rather, in my mind, it's to see heaven come to the earth and to cooperate with God in that way. I just don't think God the Father is going to leave any of the prayers of his son unanswered. And I'm not saying they all have been fulfilled yet, but I just think there's not a word that I think the son has spoken that God the Father is going to eh, forget that one. And one of us is even in the prayer that he taught us to pray. When it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. And sometimes our emphasis on heaven by means of escape of the earth 
And you hear it sometimes, even our evangelistic techniques, you'll confront somebody and ask them, you know, if you were to die tonight, would you know with absolute certainty that you'd go on to heaven? Or if it's an overemphasis on hell as punishment. But my pastoral experience is, I'm not sure people are asking those questions. Like, I just don't meet many people who are just bothered walking around with, oh, hell, hell, I'm worried about hell. Because for a lot of people, like, their life here on earth is hell. And their question is, is there good news in Jesus where heaven can come to earth and rescue them from the hell that they're living in now and then forever? And I think Jesus has good news about that. And it isn't just, hey, hold on until you die, but rather, no. There's something that's breaking in now because of the presence of the kingdom of God. And finally, the third thing, this is what I'll close with. What we do on earth now carries over into the new heaven and the new earth. Like what you commit your time to now on behalf of the kingdom of God will continue into the new heaven and the new earth. And it's still largely a mystery to me, but what's interesting is 1 Corinthians 15 is an entire chapter about the resurrection. Like Paul's got to come in and say, listen, we, we, we saw him. There, there were witnesses that saw him alive. Jesus really did raise from the dead, and you're going to raise from the dead. He'll go through this whole chapter. It's a long one about the resurrection of the body. And this is how the chapter closes in verse 58. Listen to this. He says, therefore, you know, based on everything I just taught you about the resurrection, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That whatever happened as the first fruits of Jesus in the resurrection will mean that what we do here and now will not be in vain. Let me give you two quotes from N.T. Wright that I thought were brilliant in this regard. He says this, what you do in the present by painting or preaching or singing or sowing, or praying, or teaching, or building hospitals, or digging wells, or campaigning for justice, or writing poems, or caring for the needy, or loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether, but rather they are a part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. He'll later go on to say, what you do in the Lord is not in vain. You're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though as it seems, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. So that every act of love and gratitude and kindness Every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of His creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, Every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces the embodies the holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in this world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation and God will one day, that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. God's recreation of his wonderful world, which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of his spirit means that we do in Christ and by the spirit in the present is not wasted. 
it will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. So every summer that you signed up to come over here and volunteer for a bunch of kids at Monroe School in recess, and you might not have felt like it, I'm telling you, it's not wasted. It continues on to God's new earth and new, new heavens. That every Saturday that you came over here to serve in some particular thing in our neighborhood was not wasted, but carries on to God's new creation. Every moment that you served back in Kids Canyon or somewhere to promote Jesus in some particular way, it continues on. All of that, to me, is a way better story than just a three-minute experience in heaven. That this is our hope, and this is our future. God will have his way, and he will get the last word, and it will be beautiful. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and are grateful that you are God who gets the last word. And even though we confess we don't get it all, we really are looking dimly in a mirror. It still is in large part foggy. I do ask, Lord, that you'd give us truth. I do ask that you give us wisdom and insight into these mysteries. But you get the last word. And so we put our trust in that. And we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, some buckets are going to go by your row. They're taking up our tithes and offerings. And if you have that connection card ready, it will also take your connection card. But if I could share with you real quick, there's certain things financially I loathe. Can I, can I show you a couple things that I loathe? One is parking tickets or traffic tickets of any kind. And I haven't gotten one in a while, but here's why I loathe them. Because I know whatever money I'm spending, I don't see anything from it ever again. Like There's moments I think I would get more enjoyment if I just burnt this on fire in front of me or you got to flush it down the toilet and watch it go down. There are certain fees and bills that I get that I think I don't think I'm getting anything from this. Have you ever had the experience of going out to eat and spending a lot of money but the meal was bad and the service is bad and you walk out and think, I think I just blew that money. Like It's just a waste. And for me, car repairs. Like I just car repair. Ugh, I hate it. And the reason why is because there are no legs on that money. It doesn't seem there's nothing in return. It doesn't feel like there's much dividend. It just kind of feels like a waste. And if I spend or invest money, I want to know that it's doing something, that it has value, that it was worth it, that it has legs. At the very least, when I walk away, I go, no, I'm okay with spending that money. I'm okay with investing that money. And the same is true of investments in the kingdom of God. I'm not interested in just wasting money. I want to know that it counts for something, that it's doing something, that it has legs. And that's why Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 12 and 13. This service, meaning what it is that you give, what you invest in the kingdom, is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And so if what I invest in the kingdom ultimately gives praise and glory and thanksgiving to God, it's got legs. It's got an investment like, no, that's worth, if God is glorified in this, then that is worth it to me. I don't want it to be, this is not just about, hey, we've got to keep paying the bills. No, no, I need it to do more than that, that it has to have legs, and in the end, God gets praise. And that's what I believe happens in this moment as we give in our tithes and offerings. And I remind you that it's not in vain. It will meet you in the new heaven and the new earth. So bless you in your giving.